The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing. Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you this is not true. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the land of the unsolved. This callous coward with a gun in his hand shot a cop in the head tonight. My heart grieves for Detective Sean Souter. It's no way that I would think if you're a good partner that you're going to lose sight of me. Now, if they thought at the smallest level that it involved police officers tied to their case, there's no way they would have given that case back. Listen, after a case gets 72 hours old, it gets cold. If you don't do something in 72 hours, you really have a problem. There's a radio transmission, a very brief radio transmission made by Detective Souter. Um, it was about two or three seconds. It's, it's unintelligible right now. We don't know exactly what he said, but he was clearly in distress. Welcome back to the Land of the Unsolved. The podcast explores the legions of unsolved cases and mysterious deaths that haunt one of the most violent cities in America, Baltimore. In our first series, we're talking about the case of Detective Sean Souter, a case that has come to embody all the ills that affect Baltimore. Police corruption, community mistrust, and a general sense that things are not what they appear to be. Souter was found on November 15th, shot in the head in a West Baltimore alley. The bullet that entered the back of his head came from his own gun. Police initially insisted Souter was shot by an unknown assailant. But as we've learned, that theory was in doubt from the beginning. Just a week after Souter was shot, there was still no evidence of an assailant. Reporter Jane Miller also reporting that Souter was shot with his own gun. And the police commissioner admits there is no evidence of struggle or a lone gunman. But after a massive funeral and a week with few, if any, leads, a bombshell announcement at police headquarters. I am now aware of Detective Souter's pending federal grand jury testimony surrounding an incident that occurred several years ago with BPD police officers who were federally indicted in March of this year. The acting United States Attorney and the special agent in charge of the FBI's Baltimore field office have told me in no uncertain terms that Detective Souter was not the target of any ongoing criminal investigation. Police Commissioner Kevin Davis revealing that Souter was set to testify before a federal grand jury in the case of the now infamous Gun Trace Task Force. Investigative reporter Jane Miller was there. 
So on November 22nd, exactly a week after the shooting, Kevin Davis held a news conference and said he was going to testify the next, he was, he was supposed to testify before the federal grand jury about the gun trace task force case on November 16th. We also reported with an interview with the U.S. attorney, Steve Shenning, that the feds didn't know what he was going to say. So that remains one of the great mysteries of this case, is what was he going to say? The Gun Trace Task Force is the, um, at the time, elite unit of officers, detectives, whose mission was to get guns off the street. In March of 2017, seven members of the unit, a sergeant and six detectives, were indicted on federal corruption charges, essentially robbing people, stealing from them, skimming money and drugs from them. The implications that Souter was somehow involved with ties to a case dating back to 2010. So I was also hearing a narrative in the kind of very kind of rumbling around in the, you know, surrounding the case is that he was very concerned that he was going to get outed in the case. Um, And that he had been, he had shown some concern about that. It was a case that involved a car chase, an accident, and the death of the father of a Baltimore police officer. So there was a car stop in April of 2010 that involved Jenkins and Souter and another officer. And they stopped these two guys because Jenkins thought, this is what Jenkins wrote in his charging document, that um, they, were, they were about to have transact drugs, they had too much money, whatever. He saw a guy with cash. So they stopped them. Souter was in one car and Jenkins and the other officer were in another car, so they kind of boxed him in. The guys, the two guys who were in the car, they, they indicate that they were, I don't want to say they didn't say they were wearing full masks, but they indicate that they were, you know, they had on plain clothes and they weren't quite sure. They thought they were going to get robbed. They weren't quite sure what was going to go on. So the two guys in the car take off. They somehow get their car out of that little box in and they take off and they drive a short distance and Jenkins and Souter are both in pursuit in some fashion and the, the car runs through an intersection and hits another car and causes a pretty bad crash. And as a result of that, an 86-year-old man died as a result of the accident. At the time, the two men, names are Brent Matthews and Umar Burley, were charged with drug possession. I mean, there was a, there was, because the, allegedly there, was, there were drugs found in the car after the accident. So... They were charged with drug charges. The case went to the federal government. They get convicted federally. That's kind of the end of it. And Mr. Burley gets convicted of, he pleads guilty to manslaughter in the state court. And that's kind of the end of that. Well, in fact, what happened was the drugs were planted. And that comes to light because of the testimony of, another, of the other officer, um, and Souter was the one who found the planted drugs. I think it was Mr. Burley who described Souter as kind of the good cop, bad cop. That he was like, look, you know, nothing, you'll be okay, whatever, at the initial stop. Uh, and then Souter's role, allegedly, at, at, after the crash, was to discover the planted drugs. There's no, and there's no allegation that Souter put the drugs in the car. There's no allegation that he knew the drugs were planted. The other officer who testified against Jenkins, um, you know, said that that Souter was clueless. But obviously the question remains is whether Souter knew that that was all dirty. 
And now for Sean Yost, editor of the Afro-American newspaper. All the simmering doubts that had been roiling the community about the case came to the surface. And then, again, once we found out that he was due to testify against his own colleagues, then I think it just seemed, it just seemed like almost a watershed moment for most people. They, they had a good thing. They were making money. I mean, they were getting paid between the overtime and robbing of drug dealers. I mean, you know, you bust a guy for $25,000, split it among your men. And you're getting you're already getting 80 G's in extra overtime money a year. And then you can get five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars a month on top of that. And for retired homicide detective Stephen Tabling, it was another piece of a bizarre puzzle that was not coming together. The, the thing is, is is I've had cases where somebody would be near a window and shoot herself in the head. And just remember, the gun goes off. And your hand goes, and the gun might go outside. You might find the gun feet away. Uh, would it be logical to find the gun underneath of him? Yeah, it could happen. That could happen. But again, where were the shell casings? You know, where, where were the shell casings? Uh, you can tell what side. You can tell maybe if the guy was left-handed or right-handed or what side. But again, these are things that you have to see. For Miller, who spent a great deal of time in Harlem Park, the belief was also building among community members that Souter was a victim of foul play. Well, there was already um, strong belief in the um, West Baltimore community that this was a hit on Souter. And then it just, it, it really exacerbated that. And she notes the testimony was high stakes for Souter. He, he likely would have been immunized before the grand jury. I don't... I don't know that that was his concern as much as he was going to be exposed. And in fact, he was exposed. If you remember, there was testimony from one of the detectives who testified in trial that Souter was among those who took money. I, I didn't see the man. I didn't see his body. Only thing I know is what was said. But it's very difficult for me to believe that, that somebody just walked up and put a gun in his head. I just... It's, it's tough to believe. Both Taya and I attended the trial of two other members of the Gun Trace Task Force, Daniel Herschel and Marcus Taylor. They were the only cops of the now nine officers who had pled not guilty. Both were convicted at trial. I think it's important to understand just how brazen and destructive this group was and how that culture has played into the suspicions about the Souter case. During the trial, prosecutors called a long list of witnesses, drug dealers who they robbed, a bail bondsman who helped them deal pills stolen from pharmacies during the uprising after the death of Freddie Gray. But one story stood out for its brazenness. Not satisfied with dealing drugs and cash from narcotics work, the officers began to branch out and look for more opportunities to steal. So one of the GTTF members obtained an auto-tracking device from the police department and placed it on the car of a person they had been told kept large amounts of cash in his home. They tracked his location, and when he was gone, they attempted to rob his house. But when they arrived and broke into the house, the victim's girlfriend was lying on the bed. And I remember in the courtroom, the defense lawyer asking, what did you do? And the officer said something like, I may have threatened her life. 
The point of the story is that the GTTF was so out of control, so literally unsupervised, that they operated with the impunity of a criminal organization deep within the Baltimore Police Department. And that is why, as the investigation into the death of Detective Sean Suter unfolded, the community's suspicions that what the top brass was telling them was hiding something deeper and more sinister beneath the surface only became more intense. And as details of the case were revealed that Suter was set to testify about, a different picture emerged that didn't jibe with the image of a hero cop. Instead, the story of the 2010 accident included details of planting drugs and more importantly, a longer relationship between Souter and the mastermind of the Gun Trace Task Force scandal, Sergeant Wayne Jenkins. Jenkins was the supervisor of the task force, but he was also the ringleader of the criminal activity, guiding the squad of seven officers through an array of horrific crimes, robbing residents, shaking down drug dealers, and dealing large quantities himself. I can tell you what's how he's been described by other members of the squad when they've testified and the bail bondsman who knows him very well that was the guy who was selling his drugs selling drugs for him um, is that he felt very empowered by his position in the gun trace task force Um, and that he felt like he could go wherever he wanted whenever he wanted and do whatever he wanted and I mean Gondo I think it was Gondo that described him as crazy um, he he definitely bent the rules. You know, even before committing crimes, he was bending rules all over the place. And as reporters like Miller started digging, they learned that Jenkins and Souter had ties that went back years. Well, I mean, from the moment that Souter was um, shot and that happened, you looked at his cases and it was like, whoa, he's got, he's working with these guys in 2009, 10, 11, 12. And so immediately it raised that question of whether he may have, whether his death may have some nexus to that case because of his, you know, connection to them. I also had heard that he had been concerned about what he had witnessed in that when he was working with Jenkins, etc. Um, and had wanted to be moved out of the unit. And so all of that was in the background of his death. I just, the, the, the narrative that just kept coming forward was the police did it. Which is when a new theory of the case starts to emerge. And the Baltimore Police Department makes a startling request. An announcement that changes the course of the investigation, raises doubts about what really happened to Souter, and only reinforces the notion that when it comes to the Baltimore Police Department, nothing is what it seems. This morning, I sent the following letter that I will read to you and a copy will be provided to you at the end of this press conference to Christopher Ray, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and I sent it to him today. Dear Director Ray, I appreciate and commend the leadership of Special Agent in Charge Gordon Johnson of your Baltimore field office as it pertains specifically to the, to the November 15th murder of Detective Sean Souter. Special Agent in Charge Gordon has been responsive, collaborative, and has dedicated FBI resources to our investigation. In fact, the FBI, ATF, and DEA have all been embedded into the investigation from the very beginning. A twist in the case that will push an already fraught city to the edge. You could not, if you had a thousand tongues, you couldn't say bullshit enough 
All that coming up on the next episode of The Land of the Unsolved as we continue to explore the mysterious death of Detective Sean Souter. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of The Land of the Unsolved, The Mysterious Death of Detective Sean Souter. We want to thank our guests, award-winning investigative reporter for WBAL-TV, Jane Miller. Sean Yost, Baltimore editor of the Afro newspaper, the nation's oldest black newspaper, and former homicide detective Stephen Tabling. Remember to visit the website for our sponsor, America's number one crime mapping company. Go to spotcrime.com, type in your address, and the Spot Crime Mapping Service will give you the latest info regarding crime in your neighborhood, or anywhere else for that matter. The best part, it's free. So be sure to check out spotcrime.com, because safety begins with knowing. The Land of the Unsolved was written and produced by Stephen Janis and Taya Graham for Ace Spectrum Productions. If you want to read more about unsolved murder in Baltimore and beyond, Stephen and I have written three books about the subject, all available through Amazon.com. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, You Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, A Testament to Policing That Works. Be sure to join us for the next episode of The Land of the Unsolved, where we will delve deeper into the mysterious death of Baltimore homicide detective Sean Souter. And you can visit us on our website, landoftheunsolved.com, to download new episodes or leave suggestions for a case you want us to investigate. My name is Taya Graham. And I'm Stephen Janis. And thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved.